And good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew Wild, and our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, has the opportunity to be part of something very special this morning. It was several years ago that our church sent out about 30 families uh, with Pastor Gary McGee to start a new church on the south side of Winston-Salem. Some of you remember this, yes? And um, it just so happens that today, that church, Restoration Community Church, is officially becoming uh, a church in the eyes of our denomination. So this, this is kind of a big deal. We, yeah. You know, and I do think it's very appropriate that we, we put our hands together, and um, I, I see that just maybe more as an expression of our gratitude to God, because planning a church, it's a, it's a lot like um, launching maybe a new restaurant, in, in, the, in that many don't necessarily succeed, and so we're really grateful to God for his faithfulness. Pastor David's there, along with um, Pastor Sonny Flowers, some leaders from our presbytery, some of our elders, Steve Minnick, Jeff Deadweiler, Frank Carter, who served faithfully on their leadership team all these years. And uh, we're re really excited for Restoration Community Church that's currently meeting at North uh, Davidson High School. And uh, just th this is our first daughter church, and we're prayerful that there will be more. Uh, we want to plant more churches. A River Oaks Community Church is the result of a plant, and, and studies show that one of the best ways to reach people well, with, with the good news of Jesus Christ is by planting a church. And so that, that's why it's really the desire of our heart. That's why it's part of our vision 2025, uh, to be able to plant more churches in the future. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. In the event you have one of those Bibles where the words of Jesus appear in red, you will notice that in the latter half of this chapter, what color is it? It's entirely red. That's right. And that's because this is an extended teaching that Jesus gave. It's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. So in chapter 6, verse 12, we learn that Jesus went up a mountain to pray. And then in verse 17, we're told that he comes down and he stands on a level place. Hence the name the Sermon on the Plain, and the message naturally divides into three subunits, or, or three sections, we could say. In verses 20 to 26, Jesus pronounces blessings and woes as he introduces the great reversal that his kingdom brings. He says things like, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Then in verses 27 to 36, Jesus speaks on love, which is really the heart of his ethical teaching. And then, finally, in section three, uh, we'll see is verses 37 to 49, where Jesus ends with three parables. So last week, we looked at the first two sections, and today we'll give our attention to section three, that final section. And it just so happens that this section does divide into three subunits, and this isn't something I'm just trying to impose upon the passage because they teach you in seminary that a, a sermon should have three points. Um, honest to goodness, if you have your Bible open and you're looking at verses 37 to 49, there are in fact three paragraph headings, are there not? That's right. Um, so he here's what these three subunits have in common. Jesus is driving home his points by way of contrast. 
So if you recall from what Rene just read, there are two blind people. There are two individuals with objects lodged in their eye. There are two trees. There are uh, two types of builders that end up with two different houses. And all of these dualities are designed to encourage introspection. Jesus is wanting us to consider what it means to be his disciple. He's saying, if, if you want to be my apprentice, here is what this entails. So each unit is going to issue a specific call. And we'll also see an attitude or a behavior that Jesus wants from his followers and then a corresponding warning. All right, so let's get started. Our passage begins with one of Jesus' most well-known statements. Even people who aren't Christians, people who don't go to church, they're familiar with this verse. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, what are we to make of these words? Is Jesus suggesting that we can do away with civil courts? If you're hauled in front of the magistrate for going 30 over in a school zone, do, do you approach the bench and do you say, hey, Your Honor, <laughs> you know Jesus said we shouldn't judge. <laughs> if you try that, let me know how it works. Or what, what about, you know, is, is, is Jesus saying that we should suspend all moral judgment? When Vladimir Putin bombs a maternity ward full of innocent women and children, should we refrain from making any sort of pronouncement about the rightness or the wrongness of that act? Or what about uh, parents, grandparents, if you went to drop your child off in Noah's Ark this morning and wonderful Miss Tiffany wasn't there, but there was some random guy back there dressed up like a, a, one of those creepy clowns, and he was flipping a toothpick in his mouth and kind of talking gibberish and avoiding direct eye contact. What do you think, Mama Bears? Are you still going to just <laughs> drop your kid off and shrug your shoulders and say, who am I to judge? Of course the answer is, is, is no to all of these questions. As Pastor David mentioned last week, whenever we find ourselves in a situation where we're reading Scripture and we're just kind of uncertain as to the meaning, he said that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we know that Jesus is not saying that, that we should do away with civil courts because in Romans 13, we're told that civil government was ordained by God to punish the wrongdoer. So civil government is one of God's gifts to us. We know that God uh, intends for Christians to make moral judgment because of passages like the one in Galatians 6.1, which says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This implies that we'll be making judges. In fact, uh, the, the fifth chapter of the first letter to the, the Corinthians the, the entire chapter is about the necessity of making moral judgments. And we know that Jesus intends for, for his people to exercise discernment because he'll say things like, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Or He goes on to say in uh, John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, if Jesus isn't ruling out civil courts or church discipline or spiritual discernment, 
what point is he making? Well, if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin or you just want to make a little note in the margin of your Bible, here's what I think we can write down for this section. Jesus is calling us to consider our own faults. It's a call to consider our own faults. What Jesus wants in his followers is a charitable spirit. He's warning against a a judgmental or censorious perspective towards others. He's cautioning against this tendency to be hypercritical or condemnatory. And and, and I think he does this because such an attitude, really, when you think about it, it's self-righteous. And ultimately, if one has this attitude, what we're doing is we're usurping God's role. Now, why would Jesus have to say this? Well, (laughs) there's this tendency that all of us have. I mean, when it comes to our own faults, we can give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We can convince ourselves that we're not that bad. That, oh, you know, with this particular struggle that I have, Jesus has a lot of grace. He knows this is hard. We, we can tell ourselves, ah, I didn't break one of the big ten. We, we, we can downplay our sin or we, we can rationalize it. We can say things like, oh, if you knew all the circumstances, if you knew, if you knew the kind of childhood I had, or if you, if you knew what this person did to me, or if you, if you knew the stress I've been under, um, th- then you'd understand. See, we can be charitable towards ourselves, but then we can fail to deny that same charity towards others. We can see the sin struggles in someone else, and we can come up with a different explanation for why that's the case, right? Well, they're just a bad person. We can shake our heads and we can say, man, I'd never do something like that. We can hold people down in guilt. And when we do that, really what we're doing is we're considering ourselves to be morally superior And Jesus says that if we want to be his apprentice, there is no room for moral arrogance. We we can't have this attitude of fault-finding with others while being blind to our own faults. And Jesus drives this point home a few verses later. Look with me at, at verses 41 and 42. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, Let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus is using hyperbole here and and a little bit of humor as well, I think, to make a point. I mean, it's just a little comical to think about someone uh, oblivious to a two-by-four sticking out of their eye, you know, running around and, 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 and worrying about the, a speck of sawdust that's in someone else's eye. It's a little absurd, isn't it? And the guy with the speck in his eye, he would be pretty justified in saying, hey, man, you've got a lot of nerve. You know, before you, you go pulling out your tweezers and trying to dig in my eye, why don't you look in the mirror and do something about the plank hanging out of your own eye? And, and the point Jesus is making is, is, is this is exactly what happens when we're blind to our own problems, but we want to go and we want to patronize others with our expert advice on how they should be running their life. And you know what's interesting? Jesus 
doesn't say that we should never point out a growth area to someone. He says what? He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then what? And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So we're not prohibited from speaking into someone else's life. Rather, Jesus' point is, we need to concentrate on our own faults, and then we'll be able to help our brothers and sisters. I can't help but wonder if this is one of the reasons that AA is so successful. You know, when you participate in AA, that you're assigned a sponsor. And, and what qualifies one to be a sponsor? Well, well all a sponsor is, is, is simply someone who at a previous point in their life was, was honest about a log in their eye. They sat in a circle. They admitted they had a struggle with alcohol. They went to work on that, and now they're in a position to help other people. And AA has been a very successful program for many, many people. I think Jesus' instruction here is also relevant to those of us who are parents or maybe even grandparents or coaches. Parents, um, I, I, well, let me, those of you who are brand new parents, I know you probably feel like um, you have a, a perfect angel. <laughs> those of us who have been parents a little bit longer, um, I don't mean to be the Debbie Downer here. But there, there are probably going to be some times when your child is going to need some, some correction or some discipline. And there are two ways we can approach this. We can discipline as those who are oblivious to the logs in our own eyes. Or we can correct as those who are doing the hard work of self-examination. And the older our children get, I think the more important it is that we're mindful of our own logs when we discipline them. Because guess who else is aware of them? Our kids. They live with us. Uh, they know we're not perfect. They see the plank in our eye. So, you know, what happens in your house when one sibling teases another and, you know, things escalate? Like, ho hopefully in your house, like, the kid being teased just takes a deep breath and decides that they're going to relocate to another part of the house. But, you know, maybe just as a really, like, a hypothetical thought experiment, you know, let's just assume that the, uh, the kid being teased has what we might call a short fuse, right? And, um, and punches begin to fly. Do, do you take that kid and do you sit him down and, and, do, and do you correct him in a way that makes it seem as though you've already arrived? Like, you don't struggle with self-control at all? Do, do you sit him down? And do you say, I can't believe you do that? You know, what in the world would possess you to do such a thing? Why can't you control your emotions? Or do, do you provide correction as, as one who is also trying to work through some anger issues? Do you say, listen, I, I understand why you would want to go after your brother. You know, I, I know what it's like to get frustrated with people and you know, if I'm just being honest, sometimes my first instinct is to want to haul off and punch someone too. But we can't do that. Jesus shows us a better way to relate to other people. And he, and he wants to help us in that. And, you know, oh, by the way, you still give your child a consequence. But, but when you discipline them, do they have the sense that you, you need that same grace that you want them to experience? 
I'm glad I look out and I, I, I see my teenage girls aren't in here because this, this is an area I am growing in. But here's what I would recognize. That, that I think good godly parenting begins with recognizing the planks in our own eyes because we, we want our children to experience grace the same way we've experienced it, right? So that needs to happen. So, so Jesus' challenge to his disciples is that we engage in, in honest self-evaluation before moving on to evaluate others. And I think the way that we assess whether or not that, that we're, um, we're being successful in this is our attitude towards others. If we look out and we're able to find faults with everyone around us, but we can't put a finger on several sin struggles in our own life and ways that we need to grow, then I don't think we're living as Jesus' disciples. Let's look now at the second subunit, which we find in verses 43 to 45. Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Here's what I think we see here. A call to consider our inner spiritual condition. A call to consider our inner spiritual condition. Now, I, I have a small garden that, uh, that we inherited from the previous owners of our house. And uh, to just to be honest with you, the, the thing is probably more trouble than it's worth. Like every summer when I'm out there weeding, I just keep thinking, I'm going to rip this thing up and I'm going to plant grass. Because I'm, I'm, I'm mainly just successful in feeding the animals. But because it is there... Every spring I go out and I plant something. And even though I'm not a very good gardener, it, if I put a tomato plant in the ground in the spring, guess what I'm expecting in the summer? That tomato plant to give me what? Tomatoes. Not like cucumbers or jalapeno peppers or blueberries. I'm expecting tomatoes. Because a tomato plant should give you tomatoes, and a fig tree should give you figs, and a grapevine should give you grapes. The way that you know what sort of tree you have in your orchard or what sort of plant you have in your garden is the type of fruit it produces. And Jesus says, this is kind of how we examine our own spiritual condition. This is how we properly evaluate what's going on in our heart. This is how we get a pulse on our spiritual health. What sort of fruit are we giving off? What are we producing? For better or worse, all of us are yielding something. We're giving off a product. And the question is, is it good fruit? Now, this isn't to say the disciple of Jesus never sins. But the mark of a, of a true disciple is good fruit. There's evidence of, of the fruits of the Spirit becoming more evident in our life. We see more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The, the, these fruits are cropping up in increasing measure. And, and, and what comes out of one's mouth, what comes rolling off the tongue, especially when we, when we speak off the cuff, that's reflective of our hearts. So, so the mouth is like a mirror that reveals the heart. 
And, and I think Jesus makes this point about spiritual fruit because he doesn't want any of us to be deceived about our spiritual condition. He, he wants all of us to be able to assess the true nature of our hearts. I don't think Jesus shares this so we can go around and we can be fruit inspectors in the lives of our friends and family. I think he, he says this because he's wanting us to evaluate our own lives. He wants us to give thought to our own spiritual condition. And so he warns against a life that is void of spiritual fruit. And I, I think it's important we consider this uh, because I, I feel like there might be times when really, really just some well-meaning churches or parachurch organizations out of a desire to convey the simplicity of the gospel have probably erred in placing too much of an emphasis on praying a particular prayer. And as a result, it, it might be possible that someone here is not thinking accurately about the true nature of their spiritual condition. If there's no good fruit coming from your life, and you'd say, oh, well, I'm good spiritually because I prayed a particular prayer a long time ago, then I think this verse should give us pause. Because it's not a prayer that saves us. Jesus saves us. And so the question I just I want to throw out here yeah, for you to consider is, are, are, are you trusting in a prayer uh, or an aisle you walk down or a stick you threw into a fire or a, a, a sacrament that you participated in as a child or are you trusting in Jesus? And there's a difference. It's about where we've placed our trust. And it is absolutely true that we are saved, that we're justified by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It's always going to bring forth good fruit in our lives. So here, here, here are just a few questions that can kind of help us take inventory of our spiritual condition. Question number one, would your friends and family members say that there's evidence of Christ-like growth in your life? Is, is the temper of Jesus becoming more evident in your life? It might be gradual, but is there evidence? Are you becoming more patient? Is there more compassion? Is there more love in your life? Occasionally at Rock Youth, our upper class students will, will take ownership of the Sunday evening service, and I'm so encouraged by the future leaders God's raising up. Uh, a few months back, one of our high school seniors, he stood up and shared about a particular struggle that he had wrestled with in the past and how God was bringing about change. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, this is evidence of spiritual health. God's been at work in this life. Question two, is there an increasing delight in God's commands or do we find them burdensome? Are, are, are there places that we don't go now? Are there things that we don't do? Are there movies we don't watch? Are there jokes we don't tell because we know that they wouldn't be pleasing to God? I mean, it's okay if we still find God's commands to be difficult, but do we read them? Do we look at them and say, I want to do this. I want to be obedient in this area because I know God has my best interest at heart. That's evidence of, of good treasure in the heart. Question number three, what happens after you've sinned? Is there a sense of conviction? Is there remorse? 
And, and I'm not talking about the kind of remorse that comes from, oh, wow, I really embarrassed myself and everybody's going to be talking about me. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the remorse that comes from realizing that, man, I have just grieved my Savior. I, I, have, I have just betrayed the one who, at great expense to himself, purchased my salvation. If your life is void of spiritual fruit, that, that's a gauge that's giving you a read on the status of your spiritual health. And, and it could be that you don't need to try harder to generate good fruit because good fruit naturally comes from a good tree. And so maybe, maybe what's needed is for God to do a work in the core of your being. Maybe you don't need rehabilitation. You need regeneration. You need a new heart. And, and if there's any uncertainty around this, I just, I want to urge you, I want to plead with you, don't leave here with that uncertainty. Get, get, let's have a conversation. Let's get it resolved. At the end of the service, there will be people that will stand at the tables in the back, and they would love to help you process this and think through this so you can have some certainty, some clarity around your spiritual condition. The final call or the first call I would say that Jesus extends is that call to consider our own faults. The second call is one to examine our inner spiritual condition. And then the third call is the one that we see in verses 46 to 49. Look with me at these verses. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The point Jesus is making here is pretty straightforward. This is just a clear-cut call to consider our response to Jesus' teaching. So in verse 46, we're introduced to those who profess Jesus as Lord, but they do not do what Jesus says. And then in verse 47, we introduced to those, we're told that they, they come to Jesus, they hear his word, and they do what he says. And Jesus goes on to illustrate that there's a pretty big difference between these two individuals. And what Jesus wants is obedience. He wants obedience. And, and it's tempting to think that, well, he's warning against the opposite, disobedience, but I think it's a little more specific than that. It, it's a particular type of disobedience. I think he's saying, be careful that you don't give me spiritual lip service. And the reason I say that is just because of the audience that Jesus is addressing in this sermon. We know that he isn't addressing a room full of Pharisees. Uh, this isn't the, the quarterly convention of the scribes and the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus isn't talking to uh, a bunch of pagan priests who might be hostile towards him. Chapter 6 verse 7 tells us this, that and he came down, this is down from the mountain, with them. Them, those were his 12 apostles. 
And he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So, so these are people who have an interest in Jesus. Th- these are some people who have made even some, a, a bit of a sacrifice to be there. Th- they're, they're interested in what he has to say. They're, they're like us. I mean, it, in some ways, we've made a We could be sleeping in right now, but, but we're here at church. And you know what Jesus says? The question isn't, you know, do you like some of the things I've said? Do you, do you, do you have a, a T-shirt with, uh, with some of my quotes on it? Or maybe you've got some wall art with my quotes? Or, you know, do, do you podcast sermons about me? Jesus says, no, the question is, do you hear my words and obey them? I think Jesus would say, you know, that's great if you've, if you've got a, a playlist with uh, some songs about me on it. But, but are you doing what I say? That's great if we, if we come to church on Sunday morning. But on Friday night and Saturday night, when we go into the work week on Monday, are we being obedient to him? And I'm not saying this is easy. Jesus says some pretty challenging things at times. And obedience to Jesus might be hard for us in different ways. For some, I mean, what Jesus says about forgiveness and loving our enemies might feel really hard. Uh, For others of us, what what Jesus says about uh, what we should do with our love life might feel pretty demanding. For some of us, what, what Jesus says about how we should handle our finances, it might seem hard. But if, if we say, Lord, Lord, and then we disobey him, he isn't really Lord, is he? That's not the way that works. Because if you profess someone to be Lord, what you're saying is you're recognizing their authority over your life. So if Jesus says, hey, you know, th- this is how you should handle your career, or this is what you should do with your money, or this is what you should do with your love life, and you say, no, I think I'm going to do it the way I want, then really what we're doing is we're just giving Jesus lip service. And so as Jesus brings this sermon to a close, he leaves us all with a choice. We have a decision to make. How are we going to look at Jesus? Is he just some stimulating, thought-provoking teacher who drops some really good nuggets and so we we can read through his works and we can pick out the things we like, the things that work for us? Or is Jesus Lord? Is he teaching as one with authority? And if he's teaching as one with authority, if he's Lord, then it would be pretty silly just to give him lip service, wouldn't it? If he's Lord, if he's teaching as one with authority, it would be far better to embrace that authority and to do what he says. And we know what the result is from that. What happens is it's, it's like building our life on a solid rock. The foundation of our life is solid. And, and I want to be clear here. Jesus isn't demanding perfection. What Jesus is asking for is submission. Jesus isn't trying to extend to us some sort of self-salvation strategy. Jesus knows that, that we can never be good enough to merit our own salvation, to achieve heaven on our own. That is the whole reason he came, to live the perfect life that we could never live. 
and to bear the punishment that, that we deserve to bear. So he, he isn't asking for perfection. He's asking for submission, for us to recognize his lordship. If you think back to, to verse 47, he's talking about the two different people. There's those who profess Lord, Lord, and disobey him, and then there's those who do three things. They come to him, they hear his word, and then they do what he says. And so really the way that a relationship with Jesus begins is by coming to him. We come to him in a, in a spirit of humility. We come to him conscious of our own sin and a need for a savior. And when we do that, when we say, Jesus, I, I recognize my sin and I need you to save me, what happens is, is that he's so pleased with that and, he, and, he, and he's such a gentle and good and loving Lord that what he promises that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Doesn't he say that? And so what happens is he sends his spirit to come and to take up residence within us so that, that we have a desire and we have the ability to do what he says and to bear forth the fruit that he wants. And if you've never made the decision to come to Jesus in this way, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. I'm just going to invite us all to, to bow our head. And our Father in heaven, we want to come before you now. We're so grateful that you would send your son, not just to be our savior, but also to reveal what you are like. And in the picture that we have seen this morning, Lord, we want to thank you for it, for reminding us of what you're like. Lord, you all know all the different things that are on our hearts and on our minds, the things that we're wrestling with. And we just want to say that we're so grateful that we have a God who is good, who is gentle, who deals mercifully with us. And Lord, I, I, I pray for your words where they have been convicting in our lives, that you would, through the power of your spirit that's at work in us, bring about the obedience that you would desire so that we could be followers who are pleasing to you. And if you're here and, and you've, you've never made that decision to come to Jesus, I want to invite you to do two things. One, to, to, to say a prayer that I'll, I'll lead you in in a moment. But two, don't leave here without speaking with someone at the back tables. And so you can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I recognize my great need for you. And I want to make you my Savior and my Lord. I want to walk in your ways. I want to be your apprentice. I want to follow you. Thank you for sending your spirit into my life to give me the ability to do this. And now I want to live for you. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.